Mystic Hurts, he dead. A penny for the old guy. One. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. Leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless. As wind in dry grass, or rat's feet over broken glass. In our dry cellar, shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom, remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. Two. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams, in death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There, the eyes are sunlight on a broken column. There is a tree swinging, and voices are in the wind singing, more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, crow skin, cross staves, in a field, behaving as the wind behaves, no nearer. Not that final meeting in the twilight's kingdom. 3. This is the dead land. This is cactus land. Here the stone images are raised. Here they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand. Under the twinkle of a fading star. It is like this in death's other kingdom, waking alone. At the hour when we are, trembling with tenderness, lips that would kiss, form prayers to broken stone. 4. The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here. In this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdoms, in this last of meeting places, we grope together and avoid speech, gathered on this beach of the tumid river, sightless, unless these eyes reappear, as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. Five. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response falls the shadow. Life is very long. Between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the ascents and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is. Life is. For thine is the. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Hello, scare lovers, fright fiends, lovers of all things terrifying. And really, how terrifying is it out there right now? How much has the world changed in a matter of weeks? How much has life changed? I mean, we haven't left the house, besides grocery runs and dog walks, in almost two weeks. That's right, I am going stir-crazy. I think an episode on Eli Roth's cabin fever might be in order. Not yet. <laughs> 
Uh, we're still in the process of adjusting to this new period of life, as I'm sure all of you guys are too. Both of our schools went fully online, and I'm still trying to navigate the brave new world, uh, that brave new world. Um, and Dr. Drew, unfortunately, was laid off this week. Yeah, so I've been dealing with that transition, you know, unemployment, blah, 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 blah. But I know how some of you might be feeling. Um, the silver lining, though, is that I'll be able to focus more on, uh, of my time on this show and bring you deeper and crazier content. If we keep self-isolating, we're all going to need a lot to keep us busy. Exciting times, scary times. And today, we decided to do something a little bit different. Our last episode was a little on the nose, and we seemed to come uh, right at things began to fall apart. So we aren't going to investigate any real-life sicknesses this week. Uh, no, we're going to let the masters investigate the fear of infection, the paranoia of spreading disease. But this isn't a matter of sensationalizing our world's trauma. No. Uh, it's, it's for us to see how our literary forebears tackled the subject. Maybe as we try to social distance, to flatten the curve, we can learn a thing or two from them. That's right. Drew's going to read you two short stories, and I've got a poem at the end. I'm Krista. And I'm Drew. And you're listening to Dr. Scarelove. This is Dr. Scarelove. They put him between fresh, clean, laundered sheets, and there was always a newly squeezed glass of thick orange juice on the table under the dim pink lamp. All Charles had to do was call, and Mom or Dad would stick their heads into his room to see how sick he was. The acoustics of the room were fine. You could hear the toilet gargling its porcelain throat of mornings. You could hear rain tap the roof, or sly mice run in the secret walls or the canaries singing in its cage downstairs, if you were very alert. Sickness wasn't too bad. He was thirteen, Charles was. It was mid-September, with the land beginning to burn with autumn. He lay in the bed for three days before the terror overcame him. His hand began to change. His right hand. He looked at it, and it was hot and sweating there on the counterpane alone. It fluttered, it moved a bit, then it lay there, changing color. That afternoon, the doctor came again and tapped his thin chest like a little drum. How are you? asked the doctor, smiling. I know, don't tell me. My cold is fine, doctor, but I feel awful. Ha! He laughed at his own oft-repeated joke. Charles lay there, and for him that terrible and ancient jest was becoming a reality. The joke fixed itself in his mind. His mind touched and drew away from it in a pale terror. The doctor did not know how cruel he was with his jokes. Doctor, whispered Charles, lying flat and colorless. My hand, it doesn't belong to me anymore. This morning it changed into something else. I want you to change it back, doctor. Doctor! The doctor showed his teeth and patted his hand. It looks fine to me, son. You just had a little fever dream. But it changed, doctor. Oh, doctor, cried Charles, pitifully holding up his pale, wild hand. It did. The doctor winked. I'll give you a pink pill for that. He popped a tablet onto Charles's tongue. Swallow. 
Will it make my hand change back and become me again? Yes, yes. The house was silent when the doctor drove off down the road in his car, under the quiet blue September sky. A clock ticked far below in the kitchen world. Charles lay looking at his hand. It did not change back. It was still something else. The wind blew outside. Leaves fell against the cool window. At four o'clock, his other hand changed. It seemed almost to become a fever. It pulsed and shifted, cell by cell. It beat like a warm heart. The fingernails turned blue and then red. It took about an hour for it to change, and when it was finished, it looked just like any ordinary hand. But it was not ordinary. It no longer was him anymore. He lay in a fascinated horror and then fell into an exhausted sleep. Mother brought the soup up at six. He wouldn't touch it. I haven't any hands, he said, eyes shut. Your hands are perfectly good, said Mother. No, he wailed. My hands are gone. I feel like I have stumps. Oh, Mama, Mama, hold me, hold me, I'm scared. She had to feed him herself. Mama, he said. Get the doctor, please, again, I'm so sick. The doctor will be here tonight at eight, she said, and went out. At seven, with night dark and close around the house, Charles was sitting up in bed when he felt the thing happening to first one leg and then the other. Mama, come quick, he screamed. But when Mama came, the thing was no longer happening. When she went downstairs, he simply lay without fighting as his legs beat and beat, grew warm, red hot, and the room filled with the warmth of his feverish change. The glow crept up from his toes to his ankles and then to his knees. May I come in? The doctor smiled in the doorway. Doctor, cried Charles. Hurry, take off my blankets. The doctor lifted the blankets tolerantly. There you are, whole and healthy. Sweating, though, a little fever. I told you not to move around, bad boy. He pinched the moist pink cheek. Did the pills help? Did your hand change back? No, no, now it's my other hand and my legs. Well, well, I'll have to give you three more pills. One for each limb, eh, my little peach? Laughed the doctor. Will they help me? Please, please, what have I got? A mild case of scarlet fever. Complicated by a slight cold. Is it a germ that lives and has more little germs in me? Yes. Are you sure it's scarlet fever? You haven't taken any tests. I guess I know a certain fever when I see one, said the doctor, checking the boy's pulse with cool authority. Charles lay there, not speaking until the doctor was crisply packing his black kit. Then, in the silent room, the boy's voice made a small, weak pattern, his eyes alight with remembrance. I read a book once about petrified trees, wood turning to stone, about how trees fell and rotted and minerals got in and built up, and they look just like trees, but they're not. They're stone. He stopped. In the quiet, warm room, his breathing sounded. Well? asked the doctor. I've been thinking, said Charles after a time. Do germs ever get big? I mean, in biology class they told us about one-celled animals, amoebas and things. 
and how millions of years ago they got together until there was a bunch, and they made the first body. And more and more cells got together and got bigger, and then finally, maybe, there was a fish, and finally, here we are. And all we are is a bunch of cells that decided to get together, to help each other out. Isn't that right? Charles wet his feverish lips. What's this all about? The doctor bent over him. I've got to tell you this. Doctor, oh, I've got to, he cried. What would happen? Oh, just pretend, please pretend, that just like in the old days, a lot of microbes got together and wanted to make a bunch, and reproduced and made more. His white hands were on his chest now, crawling toward his throat. And they decided to take over a person, cried Charles. Take over a person? Yes, become a person. Me, my hands, my feet. What if a disease somehow knew how to kill a person and yet live after him? He screamed. The hands were on his neck. The doctor moved forward, shouting. At nine o'clock, the doctor was escorted out to his car by the mother and father, who handed him his bag. They conversed in the cool night wind for a few minutes. Just be sure his hands are kept strapped to his legs, said the doctor. I don't want him hurting himself. Will he be all right, doctor? The mother held to his arm a moment. He patted her shoulder. Haven't I been your family physician for thirty years? It's the fever. He imagines things. But those bruises on his throat. He almost choked himself. You just keep him strapped. He'll be all right in the morning. The car moved off down this dark September road. At three in the morning, Charles was still awake in his small black room. The bed was damp under his head and his back. He was very warm. Now he no longer had any arms or legs, and his body was beginning to change. He did not move on the bed, but looked at the vast blank ceiling space with insane concentration. For a while he had screamed and thrashed, but now he was weak and hoarse from it, and his mother had gotten up a number of times to soothe his brow with a wet towel. Now he was silent, his hands strapped to his legs. He felt the walls of his body change, the organs shift, the lungs catch fire like burning bellows of pink alcohol. The room was lighted up as with the flickerings of a hearth. Now he had no body. It was all gone. It was under him, but it was filled with a vast pulse of some burning, lethargic drug. It was as if a guillotine had neatly lopped off his head and his head lay shining on a midnight pillow while the body below, still alive, belonged to somebody else. The disease had eaten his body, and from the eating had reproduced itself in feverish duplicate. There were the little hand hairs, and the fingernails, and the scars, and the toenails, and the tiny mole on his right hip, all done again in perfect fashion. I am dead, he thought. I have been killed, and yet I live. My body is dead. It is all disease, and nobody will know. I will walk around, and it will not be me. It will be something else. It will be something all bad, all evil. So big and so evil, it's hard to understand or think about. Something that will buy shoes, and drink water, and get married someday, maybe, and do more evil in the world than has ever been done. Now the warmth was stealing up his neck, into his cheeks, like a hot wine. His lips burned, his eyelids like leaves caught fire. 
His nostrils breathed out blue flame, faintly, faintly. This will be all, he thought. It'll take my head and my brain and fix each eye and every tooth and all the marks in my brain and every hair and every wrinkle in my ears and there will be nothing left of me. He felt his brain fill with a boiling mercury. He felt his left eye clench in upon itself and, like a snail, withdraw, shift. He was blind in his left eye. It no longer belonged to him. It was enemy territory. His tongue was gone, cut out. His left cheek was numbed, lost. His left ear stopped hearing. It belonged to someone else now. This thing that was being born, this mineral thing replacing the wooden log, this disease replacing healthy animal cell. He tried to scream, and he was able to scream loud and high and sharply in the room, just as his brain flooded down. His right eye and right ear were cut out. He was blind and deaf, all fire, all terror, all panic, all death. His scream stopped before his mother ran through the door to his side. It was a good, clear morning with a brisk wind that helped carry the doctor up the path before the house. In the window above, the boy stood fully dressed. He did not wave when the doctor waved and called out, What's this? Up? My God! The doctor almost ran upstairs. He came gasping into the bedroom. What are you doing out of bed? He demanded of the boy. He tapped his thin chest, took his pulse and temperature. Absolutely amazing! Normal! Normal, by God! I shall never be sick again in my life, declared the boy, quietly, standing there, looking out the wide window. Never. I hope not. Why, you're looking fine, Charles. Doctor? Yes, Charles? Can I go to school now? asked Charles. Tomorrow will be time enough. You sound positively eager. I am. I like school. All the kids. I want to play with them and wrestle with them and spit on them and play with the girls' pigtails and shake the teacher's hand and rub my hands on all the cloaks in the cloakroom. And I want to grow up and travel and shake hands with people all over the world and be married and have lots of children and go to libraries, and handle books, and all of that I want to, said the boy, looking off into the September morning. What's the name you called me? What? The doctor puzzled. I called you nothing but Charles. It's better than no name at all, I guess, the boy shrugged. I'm glad you want to go back to school, said the doctor. I really anticipated, smiled the boy. Thank you for your help, doctor. Shake hands. Glad to. They shook hands gravely, and the clear wind blew through the open window. They shook hands for almost a minute, the boy smiling up at the old man and thanking him. Then, laughing, the boy raced the doctor downstairs and out to his car. His mother and father followed for the happy farewell. Fit as a fiddle, said the doctor. Incredible. And strong, said the father. He got out of his straps himself during the night, didn't you, Charles? Did I? said the boy. You did. How? Oh, the boy said. That was a long time ago. A long time ago? They all laughed. And while they were laughing, the quiet boy moved his bare foot on the sidewalk and merely touched, brushed against a number of red ants that were scurrying about on the sidewalk. Secretly, his eyes shining, while his parents chatted with the old man, he saw the ants hesitate, quiver, and lie still on the cement. 
He sensed they were cold now. Goodbye, the doctor drove away, waving. The boy walked ahead of his parents. As he walked, he looked away toward the town and began to hum school days under his breath. It's good to have him well again, said the father. Listen to him. He's looking forward to school. The boy turned quietly. He gave each of his parents a crushing hug. He kissed them both several times. Then, without a word, he bounded up the steps into the house. In the parlor, before the others entered, he quickly opened the birdcage, thrust his hand in, and petted the yellow canary once. Then he shut the cage door, stood back, and waited. And that was Fever Dream by Ray Bradbury. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The madness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were incidents of half an hour. But Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his crenellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. These were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced 
but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor, which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro, or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from the lamp or the candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire, that projected its rays through the tinted glass, and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause, momentarily, in their performance, to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at, at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But, in spite of these things, 
It was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the Seven Chambers, upon occasion of this great fate, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments, there were delirious fancies such as madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet, and then for a moment all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon that sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears, who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length, there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled, and thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise. Then, 
finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms, such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's infinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seem now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the murmur had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of his face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment, with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but, in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, 
and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and, seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask, which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. And that was The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to me read those stories. A couple of my favorites there. And uh, I think they're sort of timely, um, you know, for everything that's going on. And we know this is a scary time for everyone. And perhaps what we can learn from these stories is that art, no matter what kind it is, a podcast, a song, literature, a painting, has this incredible ability to give us some understanding, some outlet to comprehend the rapidly changing world around us. Exactly. If we haven't learned anything from these past few weeks of isolation and social distancing, it's that artists are really important. How crazy would you be going if you didn't have the art of other people to keep you busy? Films, book, music, now more than ever is the time to appreciate those artists and recognize why their presence is so important in this world. Absolutely. And so now I've got some closing remarks for you. Um, just to talk about, you know, our Twitter, drscarelove, our Instagram, drscarelove, our email, drscarelove at gmail.com. Um, we would love it if you liked, subscribe, talk to us, um, let us know how you're doing, let us know what you want us to cover, um, because we're going to be at home for the next, you know, few weeks, the unforeseeable future. So don't forget to hop over on Apple Podcasts and leave us a, a review and we'll give you a shout out in the next episode. So now I've got a poem for you, um, which is one of my favorites. I actually had this pinned on my dorm room door uh, when I was an undergrad about like, what, 12 years ago? Um, so, You're so old. <laughs> I feel old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but it I wasn't remember, even 12 years ago. I was 18. I was 12 years ago. No, that was 11 years ago, bruh. I'm going to be 30 soon. Yeah, you're not 30 yet, okay? <laughs> Wait until your hips start clicking like mine, <laughs> all right? So this, um, uh, a professor of mine sent this uh, through email, and I remember reading it, and I loved it. So this is called A Song on the End of the World by Ses... I can never pronounce his name. Sheshla Milosh. Sheshla. Sheshla Milosh. On the day the world ends, a bee circles a clover, a fisherman mends a glimmering net, happy porpoises jump in the sea, by the rain spout, young sparrows are playing, 
and the snake is gold-skinned, as it shall always be. On the day the world ends, women walk through the fields under their umbrellas. A drunkard grows sleepy at the edge of a lawn. Vegetable peddlers shout in the street, and a yellow-sailed boat comes nearer the island. The voice of a violin lasts in the air and leads into a starry night. And those who expected thunder and lightning are disappointed. And those who expected signs and archangels' trumps do not believe it is happening now. As long as the sun and the moon are above, as long as the bumblebee visits a rose, as long as rosy infants are born, no one believes it is happening now. Only a white-haired old man, who would be a prophet, yet is not a prophet, for he is much too busy, repeats while he binds his tomatoes. There will be no other end of the world. There will be no other end of the world. Wow. Awesome poem. Awesome poem. And again, very relevant for what's going on right now. Um, so thanks everybody for uh, sticking with us today. And I just, uh, from the bottom of my heart, we wish that you all stay safe out there. Stay safe, everybody. We love you. We love you. Research for this episode was conducted by Dr. Krista Marie DeBanke and Dr. Drew Atana. More information about today's topic, or any topic, can be found on our website, drscarelove.com.